Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. What a beautiful first Sunday of June. Well, when I first read this passage from 1 Corinthians that Jason, our theologian in residence, assigned me, I thought, ah, I see he's throwing me a bone. This passage features seeds, and I am the resident seed expert on the preaching team. But as I dug into this passage and into 1 Corinthians in general, I began, began to get less confident and more overwhelmed about how to teach this passage well. The 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is uh, not a quaint parable. Paul has been building up this very intricate argument for the resurrection to the doubting church of the, in Corinth, and it all hangs on this tightly woven passage. There's so much going on in these few paragraphs, so much that's hard to wrap your mind around. The more you sit in it, the more complex and amazing that you realize it is. And as, as is common while reading scripture, I realized that I needed help, right? Have you ever reached a point when you're reading a passage and you realize that you have no idea what it's saying or what it means, that it's beyond you? So we are not meant to read and understand scripture perfectly as isolated individuals, as Christians. The church has always held that scripture is to be interpreted and taught as a community. And the church has lifted up people in every age to deeply study the scriptures and to be our guides. So I went to the man that I trust most on 1 Corinthians, a scholar named Dr. Richard Hayes, who taught at Duke while Judson and I were there. Dr. Hayes is one of the most well-respected, if not the most esteemed, New Testament scholars in the United States. On top of this, he's very humble and has this gentle, authoritative Gandalf vibe. And Dr. Hayes has devoted his whole life to the deep study of scripture, not for his own glory, but because he has a deep, deep, and very evident love for his savior. In our years in seminary, we watched him battle an excruciating bout with pancreatic cancer. And no doctor thought he would live so he spent what he thought were his last months slaving to finish his really important and long-awaited book on hearing the echoes of the Old Testament in the Gospels. But not to advance his own career, because he's really an incredibly humble man, but because Dr. Hayes knew that the proclamation of Scripture is one of the most important parts of our kingdom work. He ended up miraculously living, praise God, and now is enjoying a happy retirement playing electric guitar, his second greatest love next to Scripture. And Dr. Hayes is going to be our guide this morning through this passage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the entire faith of the church in Corinth depends on their belief in the resurrection. So we are going to take that word this morning as a word also to ourselves. And we're going to really sit in this passage from 1 Corinthians and try to understand what it's saying to us in this moment this morning. So Dr. Hayes is going to help lead us, and I tell his story because I think it is important that we know and we trust the people who teach us scripture, the voices we give authority. Paul tells his own story to the churches he writes letters to for the same reasons. They must know and trust their leader. I really encourage you to find some voices you trust to help teach you scripture and study with them. People who you know have devoted time um, and energy to studying the scriptures, whether that's a dear friend or a family member, um, a pastor or a layperson like Ashley Davis, who has spent a lot of time in Bible study fellowship. And read books and commentaries. 
Granted, I know that everyone is not like my super cute and nerdy husband who goes to McKay's, the used bookstore on Battleground, almost weekly to check what's been added to the biblical commentary section. <laughs> Judson is like a pirate with a treasure hoard in McKay's, feasting on the cast-off libraries of retired or deceased pastors. And I, as his wife, benefit because then I get to steal his commentaries. <laughs> Admittedly, some biblical commentaries are really dry and really inaccessible, downright boring. But others are wonderful and a joy to read, like the New Testament for Everyone series, which I really recommend. Um, it's written in layman's la language. And another really great way to learn about the scriptures is the Bible Project, which is my go-to recently. I listened to the Bible Project while I pruned the tomatoes in the hoop house. And they have these amazing animated videos for adults and teens that teach about different themes and books in scripture, and their podcasts are amazing. They have really sound theology and have made scripture accessible to people around the world. Um, and the Bible Project makes it easy to dig into scripture while you're on your way to work or to school, to learn about it together as a family on a summer trip. And you can ask our middle schoolers to tell you about the Bible Project as they watch these videos in their youth programming. But I encourage you to do this because the more you read and learn about scripture, the more you will fall in love with it. No one taught me to read the Bible like this as a child, and as a consequence, I found it boring most of my childhood. It wasn't until adulthood that I realized it's this amazing, never-ending, interweaving narrative that the Holy Spirit speaks to through so powerfully. Digging into scripture helps you start to see the whole world through the lens of scripture like putting on special glasses. We are going to have an upcoming post in New Garden News, which you can find in the news tab of our website, about biblical resources that we at Redeemer find particularly life-giving. We want to equip you well for your lifelong relationship with scripture. So without further ado, let's pray and dive into this passage from 1 Corinthians. Lord Jesus Christ, open up your scriptures to us your followers, so that we may see you in all of it. Teach us to be people who believe in the resurrection with every fiber of our being. In your precious name, amen. It's essential to understand that 1 Corinthians is like reading someone else's mail. This book is a letter from Paul to the church that he planted in Corinth, which was a prosperous trading center in ancient Greece. Dr. Hayes says that the whole letter to the folks in Corinth is an attempt by Paul to reform the bad theology of the young church. Paul was getting reports from the household members of his friend Chloe that the church in Corinth was acting irresponsibly. They were sleeping with prostitutes and engaging in other sexual immorality. They were segregating the Lord's Supper by class and social ranking, humiliating the poor amidst them. And they were arguing about whether to eat meat sacrificed in temples to idol gods. Paul, wise as he is, sees all of this bad behavior as a symptom of a deeper problem. He has heard that there are many non-Jewish Greek converts in Corinth who do not believe in the bodily resurrection from the dead, even though they say they follow Jesus. And he knows that their lack of belief in the resurrection is what is causing their sin. Now for us, this connection is not intuitive, right? What, what we do with our bodies now, our eating habits, our sexual habits, our justice habits may seem to have nothing to do with our hope or lack thereof in the resurrection. But Paul makes an excellent case in this letter that they are very intricately connected. The wealthy and educated folks 
who were dominating the church in Corinth and refusing to share communion with the poor in their congregation were very intellectually sophisticated Greeks. Before they converted to following Jesus, they had been socialized in an intellectual world that taught that the body and all matter was tainted and that the eternal life, that eternal life was the soul leaving the body to dwell in a disembodied state. This was the worldview in which they were raised. So even though they followed Jesus, they couldn't quite get to the point where they embraced the idea that when Christians died, they would lie in the ground, decaying, and waiting for the res Christ's return when their real bodies would be resurrected. The Greek for resurrection of the dead is literally rising of the corpses. They found this repulsive and culturally embarrassing. But Paul is super clear. If they don't believe in the resurrection of their own bodies in Christ, they don't believe in the resurrection of Christ's body. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, Paul says earlier in chapter 15. Everything they are doing in worship and in the practice of faith is meaningless, Paul says, if they don't believe in the bodily resurrection. Because Paul insists that Christ's resurrection isn't just a one-off miracle. It's not just a cool magic trick. It is the first resurrection of the resurrection of all humanity. It's the beginning of a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth that will come fully when Jesus returns in glory and brings this world to its full splendor. Christ's resurrection means that our bodies matter. Christ's resurrection means that God cherishes bodies. They will be remade and transformed. They are not just worthless shells for some more important soul, as Greeks believed. As Dr. Hayes says, Paul insists that the fundamental logic of Christian proclamation demands belief in the resurrection of the dead. Therefore, Christian hope necessarily affirms rather than rejects the body. To proclaim the resurrection of Christ is to declare Christ's triumph over death and therefore the meaningfulness of embodied life. That is why, according to Paul, our future hope must be for a transformed body in the resurrection, not an escape from the embodied state. What is amazing to me is that this dispute about what happens to our bodies after death is still going on in Christian circles over 2,000 years later. The debate is so eerily similar to that of the church in Corinth. This wrong-headed idea that the body doesn't matter, that none of the material creation matters, that the soul, just the soul matters, an idea which Christians caught from the Greeks, has persisted for thousands of years. Richard, or Dr. Hayes points out that interestingly, in our age, it exists on both sides of the theological spectrum. Some theological liberals, like the intellectual Corinthians, are culturally embarrassed by the idea of the resurrection, as it seems outlandish, and they prefer to just reject the idea of a resurrection and to paint Jesus as just a nice dude to follow, something that sort of makes sense to the secular world. That way, they look better to the secular world. And some theological fundamentalists have equally bought into this idea, touting not a resurrection from the dead when Christ returns, but an instant departure of the soul into heaven at death, which is a very popular notion in Christianity. But when you believe either of these false stories, what you do to your own bodies, to other people's bodies, and to the rest of creation does not really matter, because it's all about the soul of the individual. But Paul in this passage is saying, nope, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that until Christ returns, Christians will die and rest in the ground as if asleep until the resurrection of all humanity. 
Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that all dead and living human bodies will be resurrected and have to sit before the judgment of God. Some will be resurrected to eternal life and others to judgment, Jesus says. Speaking of his return, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of the life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Paul argues in this letter to the Corinthians that the reason they are treating the bodies of the poor wrongly, the reasons they are treating their own bodies for sexual sin, and the reason their practices are all skewed is that they don't believe that bodies really matter. They didn't believe that Jesus thought bodies mattered and, or that he would judge what they did with their bodies. And they didn't believe that Jesus was returning to bring the material world into fulfillment. And I think you could argue that Christians throughout the ages have fallen into the same traps as the Corinthians. This implicit rejection of the resurrection is so common in Christian circles, both evangelical and mainline, that I think we need to hear Paul's words for us in 1 Corinthians desperately. I certainly grew up thinking that eternal life meant my soul instantly leaving my body and dwelling bodiless forever in heaven or hell. I didn't have a concept of Christ's resurrection promise, meaning that my body would wait in the ground until Christ brought heaven to earth, and my body and all the bodies on earth would be raised and judged at the same time, that a new age of creation would be brought into play. This is the actual New Testament story, the story that the early church taught. But why? Why do we so struggle to believe in the resurrection as Christians? Even when every Easter we celebrate Christ's resurrection and we declare joyfully, he is risen. But do we believe that we will be risen? Do we believe that for our own bodies? I think my theory is why this has been a persistent struggle in Christian history is because we are terrified of death. I think we, like the Corinthians, find it easier to think of leaving our bodies behind than it is to think about our bodies decaying in the ground, patiently waiting for their savior to transform them into a glorious resurrected body. It sounds too much like a zombie horror film, we think. <clears throat> in fact, the only resurrection our popular culture can conceive is a zombie-like body, a perishable, half-dead, like super ogre kind of body, right? Sort of the anti-resurrection body. We don't want to think about our bodies in death at all. We certainly don't want to think about the bodies of our loved ones waiting to be resurrected. My grandfather recently passed away, and it was, it was really dumb. So my grandfather recently passed away, and it was really tempting to think of his soul somehow escaping the process of cremation and burial. But the prayer I prayed for him at his funeral, I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> funeral from the Book of Common Prayer did not say, may Alan's soul leave his body. It said, quote, with faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the body of our brother Alan for burial. Let us pray with confidence to God, the giver of life, 
that he will raise him to perfection in the company of the saints. Thank you. That Jesus will raise him in perfection in the company of saints at the hour when all the world is raised. This is the gospel. The gospel is not that Christ allows us to flee from death. It's that Christ defeats death in his resurrection and in the great resurrection of all of us to come. Christ's body lay in that tomb for three days, but then he arose and death had no hold on his transformed, resurrected body. That's our fate too if we are in Christ. So I want you to take your finger and I want you to press on some part of your body. I actually want you to do it, come on. So unless Christ returns before you die, that flesh you are pressing will die. It will be buried, it will turn into soil, and then our hope as Christians is that it will be brought to new life as a resurrected body. Now granted, in death we will not likely feel time, so our resurrection will feel instantaneous, or at least that's what I'm hoping, because I don't really want to feel becoming soil as much as I love soil. <laughs> so it is still accurate to say that our loved ones are in heaven, right? Outside our linear time, God is outside time, they are resurrected in Christ and with him in the new heavens and the new earth. We just have to be really careful about our language here to tell the world what Christians really believe about life after death. But how are we resurrected? That's what our passage addresses today. Paul is anticipating that folks in Corinth are going to interrogate him on how this is possible. They want to know the details, and so do we. We want to know the details. How, God, how is my body going to die, turn to soil, be resurrected? How is it possible? What if my atoms are a million places? But I'm going to read part of this passage again so it's fresh in our minds to hear Paul's answer to these questions. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for bird, and another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Okay, so what is Paul saying here? Well, he says, first of all, in classic snarky Paul Form, that we are all fools for wanting an exact explanation of the metaphysics of resurrection and that we should just take it on faith. But if he must, he will try to explain. He uses a genius analogy of seeds that he borrows from Jesus' parable in John 12 that a grain of wheat must die to bear fruit. Paul says that our bodies are like seeds, put into the ground and then transformed into marvelous form. Right now, when we look at our bodies, we cannot even comprehend the splendor of our resurrected bodies. Just as I could never guess how gorgeous a bee balm flower would be by looking at a bee balm seed, 
So this is a bee balm seed. So it doesn't look like much, right? Not super impressive, just a little brown nugget. The bee balm, um, and our bee balm seed self-seeded last year in the flower beds by the greenhouse. And the bee balm plant that bore it had to die last fall, and the seed had to be dropped into the ground and to wait all winter. And then bam, springtime. And this, who could have imagined from such a thing, such a small seed, would turn into this, such a thing of splendor and glory in just a few months? How could we doubt that the creator of these flowers of this marvelous process of a little seed bursting into life, how could we doubt that he would not be able to resurrect our own bodies? If he will do this for a flower, he will do this for your body. He will do this for my body. This whole passage is a tribute to the beautiful materiality of the cosmos. Paul says that all of the universe is embodied, that even the stars have bodies. From the stars to us, to fish, to the heavenly bodies, to angels and spiritual bodies. He's trying to convince the Greek Corinthians that bodies are not something to be ashamed of. Bodies are the, are the stuff of all of God's good, good creation. Our resurrection is not about becoming less embodied. It is becoming more embodied, differently embodied. We take on the imperishable bodies of the heavenly realm. The only thing wrong with our current bodies is that because of the evil one and his schemes, our bodies are confined by death in this age. But Jesus defeats Satan and all death in his resurrection. It's not our bodies that are wrong or creation, God's good creation that is wrong. God made all things and called them good, says Genesis. God cherishes bodies. It's the fall of creation through evil that makes us long for our resurrection. Jesus spends his time on earth healing bodies, touching bodies, rubbing spit on bodies to heal eyesight, holding little children's bodies, feeding bodies, and raising Lazarus's dead body, because bodies matter to Jesus, and God has great plans for all bodies in the age he is coming to bring. God cherishes bodies. Now, Dr. Hayes warns that if you read this passage out of context, particularly the lines, it is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body, and flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, it could seem like Paul was reinforcing the ideas that our resurrected bodies are not material, that they aren't really bodies, but disembodied spirits. But Paul has been arguing against this for the whole letter, so that can't be the case. So Dr. Hayes says that part of the problem is, in fact, that the Greek in this passage is really hard to translate, so allow me a nerdy moment, and that our English translations can be a little misleading because of it. The Greek words that most of our translations translate as physical bodies and spiritual bodies is physikon soma and pneumatikon soma. The English word physical comes from the Greek word meaning psyche or soul. So in light of that, Dr. Hayes thinks it's a better translation to say, when it is sown, it embodies the soul. When it is raised, it embodies the spirit. If the soul has its own embodiment, so does the spirit have its own embodiment. Soul bodies and spirit bodies. So when our bodies, this body, is sown into the ground in death, right? it embodies my soul. But when it is raised, when I am raised in the resurrection, Lord willing, then I embody the spirit. 
So part of the issue here is that we think more like Greeks than we think like Jews about the soul and the spirit. Um, and there's a long reason for that, but I won't go into it. But the Greeks thought of the soul like a little non-embodied alien creature embodying a shell, like men in black, like little aliens that like sit in the bigger things. Like that's how the Greeks, for those alive in the 90s. <laughs> um, but, for, but for the Jews, as seen in the Old Testament, the soul, which they call the nephesh, was the animating breath in, in creatures created by God. It was the empowerment behind their bodies. It's Adam receiving the breath of God. It's the breath in our lungs. It's our life force, the blood in our veins, the energy in our limbs. This is how they thought of the soul. It's the gift of life from God in this age. And the Greeks thought of the realm of the spiritual as also disembodied. Spirits were ghost-like creatures. They had no matter. But Jews thought of spiritual creatures like angels as having bodies. Think of all the embodied angels that visit God's people in the Bible, right? So the angels that wrestles with the angel that wrestles with Jacob is embodied, right? He can feel him, he can wrestle with him. The angels that, that sits with Mary is embodied. But they have different kinds of bodies, heavenly bodies that God has given them. Paul is arguing that in the resurrection, our glorious transformation will be from an earthly body to a heavenly body, from a body of the soul to a body of the spirit. And Dr. Hayes says that that's Paul's point. Our mortal bodies embody the psyche, the soul, the animating force of our present existence. But the resurrection body will embody the divinely given pneuma, spirit. It is to be a spiritual body, not in the sense that it is somehow made of spirits and vapors, not material, but in the sense that it is determined by the spirit and gives the spirit form and local habitation. Flesh and blood won't inherit eternal life because our resurrected bodies won't be powered by blood as they are now. We don't know what they will be like, but they'll operate differently. Jesus' resurrected body still ate fish and could be touched, right? His disciples touch him, they feed him broiled fish, but he also walked through walls, which will be really cool. It's like saying that the bee balm seeds, hard husk, won't inherit the kingdom of God. Because by the time of the kingdom, it will be all petals and splendor. It is not that the flower is less material, but that it is differently material, a different form entirely. Does this make sense? Are you with me here? It's hard. It's a lot to wrap your mind around. Um, I know it's mind-bending, and I know there's a lot of mystery in this, but I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly what this means. And I don't think we're supposed to understand, fully understand no more than the bee balm seed understands what is in store for her in the spring. But the point Paul is trying to make is there is an immense hope for our bodies, our real bodies. We await with eager longing for this resurrected body to come. We long for the time to come when we will dwell with God in our resurrected bodies, in a resurrected creation, in the Lord's divine love. We long for the time when we will dwell with God in our resurrected bodies, in a resurrected creation, in the Lord's divine love. That's why all Christian funerals should be a hopeful occasion. No matter how awful the death, how bad the cancer, how horrible the accident, how young the person, if they are in Christ, we trust that their body to come will be glorious. It will be beautiful, that they will be whole and vibrant, that we will see them again on the day of the resurrection. God cherishes bodies. 
More specifically, God cherishes your body. He loves every cell of your body. He has great plans for every atom of your body. The body that you wish was thinner or more beautiful or more toned. He loves your body way more than you love your body, I guarantee. We are hard on our bodies. Our bodies are like fine china to God, not like styrofoam plates easily destroyed or disposed. In Christ, every fiber of your body will be resurrected and transformed. And he loves your neighbor's body, the person sitting next to you, their body, the body of the coworker who drives you crazy. He loves the body of the homeless person on the street, the body of the child in the foster care system. He loves all of those bodies because they are creatures he created, because he created them as bodies, with bodies. He loves his embodied creatures. We are bodies, and he loves us. So Paul ends his argument on the resurrection by saying, therefore, because of the resurrection, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If the Corinthians truly believe in the resurrection, Paul argues, they will be able to stand firm with no fear of death. They won't give in to the cultural pressures, to sexual immorality, to class division, to segregated eating. They will need to labor to make their community holy, to treat their own bodies and the bodies of those they interact with as holy creatures united in Christ. But this labor, this work, will be worth it, Paul says. It will not be in vain. All the labor we do as Christians is a form of loving other people's bodies, is it not? when we evangelize for their resurrection, when we heal, when we feed one another, when we care for the elderly or the ill or the lonely, when we care for children's bodies, when we teach, when we preach, all of it is ministry to bodies. And the labor we as Christians do at our daily work, if it is in the Lord, is a ministry to bodies. The resurrection means all of this labor is not in vain. When we do all this work, we are proclaiming to the world that God cherishes bodies, that God cherishes all of his embodied creation, from the stars to us to flowers, that a new heaven and a new earth are coming, and we as Christians are giving a foretaste of it through our embodied life together. In the powerful name of Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. Amen.